Optophobia, the fear of opening one's eyes. This podcast is dedicated to encouraging you, our listeners, to move beyond that fear, to solve riddles they don't want us to unriddle, to investigate supposedly ironclad truths, to unearth evidence buried for so long they believed it would stay buried. Season 1. A Cold War-era military base in the Horn of Africa called Cagnew Station. For years, there was an official story about a U.S. intelligence project at Cagnew, codenamed Stonehouse. The project included a pair of 15-story parabolic antennas that the American government claimed was simply part of a powerful radio communications operation. But as the space race with the Soviet Union intensified, that cover story looked increasingly flimsy. By the 1970s, civil war forced the U.S. from Ethiopia, and Cagnew Station closed for good. Or did it? What was Stonehouse, really? What happened at Cagnew Station between 1974 and 1991 when violence and war gave perfect cover to any shadowy agency, organization, or cabal seeking it? This season on Optophobia, we'll track down the distortions, the assumptions, the omissions. Are you bored by the lies? Open your eyes. Hi, everybody. I'm your host, Victor Cifuentes. This is our season finale, and I'm joined in the studio this week by both of my amazing co-hosts, Hassan Gray, host of the Not My Problem podcast, and Deborah, former host of the syndicated radio program, Deborah. Hey, guys. How's it going? Hi, Victor. Thinking about changing the name of my podcast to just dropping the knot and making it my problem. Oh. That, that sounds defeatist. No, no, no. I'm just uh, embracing the fact that I've created a monster, and I just have to accept that my p- podcast is my problem. And maybe that's what I should be talking about. Hassan, that is so brave. Thank you, Deb. If I were matching that with a song, which, you know, not is not my job anymore. It's not my problem. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, yeah. to borrow your parlance, mm-hmm. I would play From This Moment. By the Beastie Boys? Not that one. Okay. I'm not familiar with those boys. Okay. I would play Moment Like This by Kelly Clarkson. You know okay, that? yeah, I know Kelly Clarkson. Some people it. wait a lifetime for a moment when they can take their own fate as their own, mm-hmm. like you're doing right now. Yeah, that song was also a song that she uh, wrote after she defeated the first African-American finalist, Justin Guarini, in the finals of American... Idol, correct? It was like uh, putting a knife and twisting it in his back a little bit. Uh, everyone waits for a moment like this. You don't think he waited, too, for that moment? Well, I think that their movie project, From Justin to Kelly, yeah, makes to differ see? about their relationship. Look at that. And I was not aware that he was African-American. Oh, you, what did you think it was? Just guess off the top of your head. curly-haired white. Okay, I can see that. Curly-haired white. Oh, yeah. I sometimes get mistaked for that. Curly-haired white. That's also my um my order at the uh, bodega. 
where I come, where I grew up. I said, hey, can I get a curly-haired white? Is that curly fries with mayonnaise? Curly fries with mayonnaise. Curly-haired white. South Carolina pride. Is that a, that's a South Carolina dish? Yeah, that's a that's a Myrtle Beach specific dish. You go to any fast food place in you know, a Myrtle Beach and you say, "Excuse me, can I get a curly white?" And they, I mean, they got them sitting right there by the cash cashier, and they just shove it to you. And if you order a curly haired white with beanies, they put boiled peanuts on top. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And that's a little South Carolina trivia. Yep. That's true as well. Wow, Deb, I didn't know you knew so much. I have much a lot about of fans there. Okay. Have you done a book signing? In Myrtle Beach? Actually, yes. I've done one in Myrtle Beach and one in Sparkleburg, a.k.a. Spartanburg, mm-hmm. Sparkle City. This is kind of embarrassing because I went to the uh, book signing in Spartanburg. I know you're thinking, why didn't you go to the one in Myrtle Beach? I was uh, playing putt-putt golf that day, but she did one in Spartanburg, and I showed up. She um she signed my book. She did not recognize me. Was this before our podcast? No, it was, it was while we've been recording. She just, um, I, I came up with a book. I said, hey, Deb, how's it going? She said, oh, what a lovely, f-. she said it more like, what a lovely fan you are. A lovely fan. How shall I write this for you? Sometimes I slip into a British accent when I'm mm-hmm. doing my book signing because I feel yeah. like the queen. Yeah, and you were, you were very regal. My fans make me feel like the queen. And Hassan, I am so sorry for not recognizing you that day. It's fine. I know you had a lot on your mind. You had all those fans to please, and I'm just happy that you signed my book with you what you wrote. You wearing your normal Verizon polo. No, I wasn't. I was off work that day, so I'm wearing it right now because I just got off work, so I'm over here. But that day I actually had off, so I went in my, my civvies. Deborah, are you sleeping any better these days? I would love to tell you that I am, but I am not. This podcast has really gotten into your head. Well, I would say that it is two boys from Philadelphia that got into my head and wouldn't let go. Right. Mm. But, yeah, you know, I wish I could say I'm sleeping better, but I am not, especially not after those revelations last week. That was disturbing. So disturbing. You know, I like to think when I can go on a cruise, I can unwind, but I'm not going to be able to unwind on any cruises. You guys are talking about Terry Timmons? He ruined the Lido deck for me. He reminded me of what I mean to my fans. He was a giant fan. Like he's a fan of the New York Giants? No. Oh, fan of he's Deb. From Giant. Deb. Okay. He's a Deb head. Oh, oh he's a Deb. I got it now. Call them. Big Deb head. Also had been to a book signing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but sometimes we'll have Deb heads who follow the Deb around the country. And sometimes you know it's a Deb head when they put a little bear on their car. Mm-hmm. They put like a little colored a Deb bear. bear. Mm-hmm. That's that's the the sign of being a Deb head. We have a lot to do on this finale some of which is going to be talking about our guests from the season. First, let me talk a little bit about something that just has totally blown me away in the last week. It's very exciting how it worked out, actually. And it's really rare, I think, that on a show like this, that you talk so much about what could have happened, what may have happened to a a mystery that exists. And then it is suddenly solved in perfect timing with the final episode of your podcast season. Um, but that's what that's what's happened. Mm-hmm. We have an answer. And wow. Yeah. So last week, one of our listeners, uh, Charlotte Sookie from Hanging Rock, Ohio, found an old letter in her father's glove box that definitively solves the puzzle we've been trying to piece together for this whole season. Mm. I mean, this has happened a number of times over the course of the season. My Stonehouse expectations were upended in this case 
very literally. This reminds me to check my glove box. We spoke to a lot of, well, I think three, actually three guests this season. Sylvia Brown, Tabitha Walton, and Father Richard Thomas about what may lie underneath the antennas as opposed to whatever business they have in the skies above us. And that's a little hint about what's to come. Mm. Before we get to that, I thought the three of us could talk a little bit about the amazing guests, the amazing people we've had on over this season. Did you guys have any experiences as hosts of this show where a guest kind of blew you away or that took you a little deeper into the Cagnu uh, history or upended your thoughts about what the whole thing may have been about? I would start with the beginning with Theodore Kettle, Mm. who was the man with the story of the beautiful story of losing his virginity in the cradle of life at the Africa's Great Rift Valley Mm -hmm. near Cagnu. And his revelation about the woman named Olga Mm. and, and how that lined up with my research where if you play man-eater backwards it says olga Mm -hmm. that got us started it was amazing that our very first guest theodore kettle and our last guest of the season terry timmons it kind of it did come full circle because what terry was hearing from the ship's uh communication receiver was a lot of russian he wasn't sure what that what that ever was but on this show last week we made the connection to what we we have come to call Project Olga. He he kept hearing this this word, Olga, Olga, over and over again. It had this crazy effect on the crew, but it it was a direct line back to Theodore Kettle's wow. uh, episode. I feel like I've met quite an eclectic group of people I've interviewed, and I'm not sure any of them connected very many dots. Uh, I think they're more like a scatter chart right now for me, but um, they have been insightful in other ways, like. Um, Dan Hammer, mm-hmm. remember him? Yeah, of course. Pretty sure he's a murderer. Yep. That's that's a first for me. We didn't really figure out until the very end. Yeah, of that until the very end. That yeah, that was also disturbing in a different way that had nothing to do with Cagnu. It had nothing to do with Cagnu, but it was like, oh, this is what it's like to be in the room with someone who is, you know, evil incarnate. Yeah. So it was very dark. It was very cold. Bang bang, Maxwell Silver, Dan Hammer. That'd be my match for that. Oh, oh. Just wanted to do another match. I can't resist you, you it sometimes. Can't it, yeah. I can't help it. Okay. It's just how my brain works. Stories to songs, songs to stories. Maybe if you had known Dan Hammer and, and heard his story before he started killing people, you could have helped. Oh, you mm-hmm. know, they've done a study, and some people say that I've helped over 100 would-be mass murderers turn around. Somebody should be using you. Yeah. That's what I've been telling them. Take me to the prisons. Take me to the prisons. Let me do my thing. You've had a, over a hundred mass murder would be mass murderers mm-hmm. do a. They 180. call in. They call in. I give them my advice. I match their story to a song. They think about it in a different way. See, that's part of part of my unifying theory about Hall and Oates, is that songs have the ability to change our brains, mm. and I've changed brains for the good. But Terrell and John brains for the worst. Well, if you could do this for over 100 mass murderers, I'm wondering what you could do if I could get Kimberly to call in. She's been mass murdering my feelings. Oh, son. Yeah, just been sniping them from afar. Could really use your techniques. Hassan, have you taken the time to listen to Kimberly and make her feel like a woman? 
Uh, yeah, I listen all the time. I've got a lot of bugs I've planted in her apartment. You know, I, I listen all the time to things she says, things she's doing. Okay, we'll, we'll talk about that later. Okay. Any other uh, guests that you guys, that stand out to you guys? I would say that the brain suck and the brain pump have stuck with me. It was Gary Belt. That was also kind of an image that you, that I found at least hard to get out of my head. Yeah, a, a man trussed up like a Hawaiian pig on a spit, being infused or defused with knowledge, depending on whether it was the suck or the pump. In between the Cagnew antennas. In mm-hmm. between the Cagnew antennas. So not quite like a Hawaiian pig, more like a being drawn and quartered, yeah. medieval style. Mm-hmm. This really ties into this whole idea of brain manipulations, right? Mm-hmm. Getting brains scrambled and rambled in a way that Russian or other dark thoughts, dark ideas can be implanted into somebody. Mm-hmm. Or that their own psyche could be used against them. It's just all creating a disturbing pattern to me around Cagnu and the manipulation of minds. See, this is what Kim Ingram was talking about with the magnets, where it's got people thinking north is actually north, but it's not because the magnets from Cagnu are actually sending your signals and swapping them. So it's like you think I'm going north, but you're actually headed south. I have to say that that episode was very jarring Mm -hmm. for me. I came out of there and I thought... How do I get home? Oh, am I going home? When I got home, did I, am I really at my house? Yep. That's the same. That's how I felt it too. So I, when I got into my car and I, I put it on ways to find my yeah. way home, I was like, wait a minute. It's telling me to go one way, but it's actually me in the opposite. So I just turned, turned my phone around. upside mm-hmm. down and I made it home. And I was like, this looks familiar. When you did that, did the phone, did it, ro- do you have Yeah, the phone then rotated. I tried to do it a couple of times. And then I had to go into settings and do screen lock. Right. So once I did the screen lock, it was fine. It was but okay. yeah, but that's, that's the other thing though. Cause it's like what, what I've been saying about Cagnew is they're watching you. They're always watching us through our phones. They're tracking everyone through phones and new tech, right? So here's another example of they know that I'm turning my phone cause I found the truth about north south oh. and they're like well let me switch this around for him let me switch this around for him let me not let him get the truth but wait a second if you can change north to south mm-hmm. can't you also change an american thought to a russian thought easily yep to a soviet thought those are two polar opposites that's a flip there mm-hmm. so miss ingram's theory matches up yes it does it extends to uh ideology not just direction mm-hmm. so you guys have each had your own cagnu theories before we started the season i'm curious hassan if over the course of the last three months of talking about cagnu things have changed for you so the reason that we wanted you on this to co-host this podcast was because of your concern over the electronic life of americans and who was controlling that so i'm wondering if you've Learned anything or or felt like you've imparted enough of that concern to our listeners? Well, I feel like earlier on I did try to mitigate being followed by switching from an Apple iPhone mm-hmm. to uh, just a bottom-of-the-line Samsung, an XQ7-8. I could do nothing but call and text, right? Had no location services, nothing. But what I found was it was actually making more work for myself. So I, I'm back on Apple iPhone, and I realized that was an epiphany. It was like, a, this is what they want. 
They don't want you off the grid, so they make it complicated if you choose to be off the grid. And I said, well, that makes sense if they're using this station to track everyone's signal. Of course they want. They make you so reliable on it that without it, not only are you lost to them, but you're lost to yourself. What's next for you? What are you what are you going to do? I'm assuming you're going to continue the my problem or not my problem podcast, but do you have any I think I'm going to um keep the podcast going. Mm-hmm. I'm going to voluntarily take administrative leave from Verizon Fios as a installer and sales analyst. Uh, I say that because um there's some things that have come out uh, to my background check that have not been favorable for my employment continuing at um, Verizon. So I'm just going to take this time now to step away, do a lot of thinking, and then um, you know, when that investigation is done, probably come back to Verizon. But right now it's just too much because uh, they found out uh, someone actually listened to my podcast. Oh, congratulations. It's a gift and a curse. So you got to be careful with that. Uh, someone listened to my podcast and they've heard the disparaging remarks I've been making against Verizon Fios and the CEO. So I've been put on administrative leave until the investigation finishes. And that's two. I got two weeks paid vacation right now. Well, yeah, as you were saying, I think to in our conversation with Dan Hammer, mm-hmm. that's great. Paid vacation. When it's done, I'll, I'll be back at work, I'm sure. And after that, uh, I'm just thinking about career wise. The biggest thing in my life I want to correct is my relationship with my estranged ex-girlfriend who wants nothing to do with me. I hope that that works out. You you obviously have a lot of uh, love for her. You've talked about her a lot on this mm-hmm. season. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm pretty sure she hasn't listened because I'm sure I've gotten a call. Yeah. So that's disappointing. Deborah, let's turn to you for a second. We have learned a lot this season about the revelations, thanks to you about Daryl Hall and John Oates and how they were involved in Soviet subterfuge in the 1980s and how they used Cagnu to spread their communist lyrics. What have you learned in the course of this season? I told you when we first started that I knew that Hall and Oates had music that contained Soviet messages and was being used to brainwash Americans into believing in Soviet ideals. And my only questions were how and why. And I think that throughout this season, we've really gotten at that how. And I believe that Cagney was being used as a testing grounds through this Project Olga in order to figure out how to both disseminate these messages and and make them stick into people's minds. So they were frying brains, if you will, with these antennas. Mm -hmm. And doing so in order to figure out how to use this weapon that they created in the form of Hall & Oates. You had received cease and desist letters from Hall & Oates' attorneys before we started this podcast. Have you heard from them since we've been uploading material every week? I have not heard a peep. Not one. Because I think they know that the cat is out of the bag. I wouldn't be surprised if Hollow started owning up to it and just coming out and saying, we're communist. You know, we'll start seeing those tweets where they're doubling down on it. We're communist. So what? So your book is about published about a year ago. How is it doing? You know that the Deb heads, when they get the scent of a new Deborah project, they will be on it, and my Deb heads have supported me all the way. 
We are selling on Amazon.net backslash truth. We're selling on Infowars backslash you betcha. All these platforms are carrying my book because they know that there are people out there hungry for the truth. Let's take a quick break and we'll be right back with my season one co-hosts, Hassan Gray and Deborah. Hey, optophobes. Have you ever wondered why you're fat? It's probably because you're also poor, at least compared to me. This show was recently the beneficiary of an estate that included ownership of a fairly large liniment company called Blend Venom Solutions, makers of Spikenard monocled Cobrasolve. I say a large company because last year its revenues were approaching $200 million. But here at Optophobia, we intend to turn that large company into a venom empire. To start, we went out last week and made two deals. The first was to invest in the elder care facility industry by purchasing the polyps at Jonathan Winters in Shalimar County, Florida. That community has been good to the show. And we also bought Vespasian's Roman helmets, really just because I thought it would be funny to do that. And we gave everyone at the polyps at Jonathan Winters their own Praetorian Guard helmet. We also have our eye on a number of smaller venom ointment competitors, including Fang Juice Corp., the Slither Spit Fund, and Ron's Snakes, which is just a guy off the side of Denny Avenue before it turns into Route 90 in Pascagoula, Mississippi, like right off the Gulf there. Anyway, we have big plans, optophobes, and we hope you'll be there alongside us as we grow. Gird for the burn. Hey, we're back. So I mentioned at the top of the show that listener Charlotte Sookie found a letter in the glove box of her father's 1994 Chevy Cavalier that lays out exactly what the Stonehouse antennas were for. It's not totally surprising that we were on the wrong track because the Stonehouse antennas really were antennas, it turns out. They really were used to steal Soviet telemetry during the space race. They really were being used by the U.S. military to communicate with Cold War nuclear submarines in the Indian Ocean. But according to this letter, those functions were a cover for what Stonehouse really was, the derrick of a massive drill. So the letter in question was sent to Charlotte's father, Captain Brian G. Sookie, in 1986, which is a dozen years after Cagney Station was officially abandoned by the U.S., and five years before the end of the civil war in Ethiopia, so squarely in the middle of Cagnew's so-called dark years that we've talked a lot about, Charlotte told me that her father, who disappeared from a family trip to Cedar Point Amusement Park a year ago, had been sent on a classified mission to Cagnew in the late 1970s. The 1986 letter was written to Captain Sookie by Rear Admiral Phineas Jones, and the subject was the abandonment of the project that Captain Sookie had led for nearly a decade, codenamed Stone Straw. So piecing together intelligence we gleaned from Captain Sookie's letter and some subsequent research that I did for context, here's what we can now conclusively say was the real purpose of Cagnew Station. In 1962, engineers discovered a colossal oil field in the Red Sea Basin called Ajeep Durawa No. 2. Over the next decade, the U.S. Geological Survey estimated that Ajeep Durawa contained a potential 9 billion barrels of oil and 37 trillion cubic feet of gas, and hundreds of exploratory wells were drilled. 
But after the Derg ousted Emperor Haile Selassie in 1974, those explorations were threatened and Cagnu's focus moved from sky to earth. The plan was ambitious, to move crude out of a now-conflicted area. The U.S. formed a partnership with several oil companies to fund a mega-infrastructure project that would both solve the immediate geopolitical energy problem and set up a future commercial enterprise benefiting American interests. Stone Straw would drill through the Earth's core and back up through the mantle and crust on the other side popping out near the island of Fangatau in French Polynesia. A team of engineers would follow, building a pipeline that would use gravity to bring Red Sea oil to the Pacific Ocean, and from there tankers would move the oil to San Diego. Based on the pitch that exploring the planet's core was a complement to the space race, Congress chipped in $2 billion for Stone Straw in 1976. Strains of a group called the American Miscellaneous Society, which had formed in the 1950s and dissolved in 1964, and that had connections in the oil business, earth science community, and the military, were deeply involved in organizing and implementing the project. AMSOC, as that group was known, forecasted that the Ajip Darwara field would run dry in the early 1980s, so its founder, a man named Gordon Lill, who had worked for the Office of Naval Research, convinced a young transportation executive named Peter L. Picknelly to take on phase two of the Stone Straw project. Picknelly was the son of Peter C. Picknelly, the founder of Peter Pan Bus Lines, who had died in 1964. Peter the Younger was 33 when he took over the company and made a splash, offering all-inclusive one-day tours of the 1964-65 World's Fair in New York City. The financial success of his World's Fair idea led to the first travel and tour division of the company, Peter Pan World Travel Service. From there, the natural next step was, of course, shepherding people through the Earth's molten core. Picknelly and Lil's plan was to wait for the signal that the oil reserves in the Ajib Durwara number 2 were depleted, then bring tourism from the Middle East to Hawaii via hypersonic gravity-assisted maglev vacuum tube trains. Captain Sookie had been the Stone Straw quarterback, coordinating and engineering the intelligence, the local politics over oil extraction, and the broad government business partnership that dreamed of an intercrust rail system. By the time Admiral Jones instructed Sookie to shut the project down in 1986, Stone Straw had reached about 60 miles under the earth. That's about the point at which the lithosphere layer of, of Earth's crust ends and the asthenosphere layer begins. The asthenosphere is much hotter than the lithosphere, warmed by convection currents from the Earth's core that push magma up through volcanic vents in the crust. Those currents can stress the lithosphere, and engineers now believe that stone straw agitated a subduction zone as it moved from one layer of the planet's crust to the next. That caused a series of earthquakes in 1985, which in turn triggered an eruption of the Nabro volcano, located in the Afar region at the southern end of the Danakil Depression, near the Red Sea. Geologists had believed Nabro was extinct. Its eruption, in turn, triggered a three-month-long swarm of locusts across the Great Rift Valley. So Stonestraw had been a favorite project of President Ronald Reagan, who often checked in on its progress, but as 
congressional budget oversight pressure mounted, the president agreed to defund the project. So in his letter, Admiral Jones told Captain Sookie that the earthquakes, volcanic eruptions, and locust swarms had been final straws for a program already over budget and years behind schedule. He wrote, quote, If stone straw drill bits have begun failing at 400 degrees, <clears throat> nearing the athenosphere, what technology will allow us to work in the core at 11,000 degrees? What machine that we have now, or even one we can envision for the future, can withstand temperatures like those on the surface of the sun? 60 miles into the planet's crust is a great engineering and historical feat, and for that your team should be proud. But after 10 years of drilling, less than 1% of phase one, just the dig itself, has been accomplished. We have nearly 7,900 miles to go, and then we have to build the pipeline. And the Peter Pan guy is super annoying, and I think crazy. So Charlotte told me that after her father shut down Stone Straw, he handed the Stonehouse keys to the CIA and the NSA. He retired from the Navy and became a football coach at Rock Hill Middle School in Southern Ohio. Hmm. So this letter from a listener... Fucking Reagan. ...seems to indicate that we were not really on the wrong track. So I don't think anything we've talked about is necessarily wrong. But there is this evidence that the real purpose of those antennas were to go underground. I don't know. I'm I'm um, having a hard time right now because, you know, you believe something so much. And, you know, you have a theory like mine where it makes complete and utter sense. And then I'm supposed to, like, what, drop that rational thought for the idea that we're tunneling through the earth with trains through molten lava. Uh-uh. Deb, talk to me here. Talk to me here. Deb Heads, if you're listening, I want you to write, call, and review this podcast and give it zero stars. Guys. You know the truth, Deb Heads. I'm talking to you. Your job is to give this podcast zero stars so nobody listens to this Soviet drivel. I have reason to believe that Victor has been compromised by listening to Hall and Oates oh and God. has become an agent of Soviet chaos aimed to destroy our knowledge of what we know to be true. Oh, that's why his Do not book. listen. Do not believe. Zero stars. Oh, my God. This makes sense. His last name's Sefuentes. Sefuentes. Cuban much? Cuban much. Cuban much? Cuban much. Let's just cool off a second. Hold on a second. I was not... Cool off like the uh, the what at lithosphere. It's 10,000 degrees. Can't, yeah, we can't, can't drill. drill in 400 degrees. And what technology uh -huh. is there to drill in 1,100? Uh -huh. Mimicking the surface of the earth, of the sun. Let me tell you something here, Victor. And I'm speaking now directly to all the other cable men who listen to my Not My Problem podcast. And Deb Heads. And Deb Heads. Review this podcast and give it a zero rating. Listen to me when I tell you, this is a Russian informant. He has come in here and he has just his subterfuge and his lies, just like the lies they told at Chernobyl. You, We all knew what Chernobyl really was. Mm -hmm. And here you are right now trying to insert your lies everyone listening give this podcast go to apple podcast right now you know what cagnew is deb heads listen to this you know what cagnew is 
Cagnu is this podcast right now, scrambling and rambling inside your brain, mm-hmm. making you hum a happy little tune like the blue-eyed soul straight from the Russian subcontinent. Mm-hmm. So when we started this season, the three of us got together and we said that we would be open to following the thread of the truth wherever it led. Well, you the said name that. of the podcast. No, you said you were open to following the thread. <laughs> yeah, and I you think also we said are, truth. Yeah, we were fo- we were looking for truth, truth. where that may be. Right. Well, you said you were open to following a thread. We did not understand that in the first part. We were like, why is he following a thread? Just follow the truth. Follow the fact. And the truth is led by our threads. Our threads. Not a thread. Not a thread. But wait, are you saying that you have a particular truth that you were not open to? <laughs> We've spoken on our truth. truth. Go to Apple Podcasts and search this podcast and give it a one star rating. Oh, that's too nice. Zero stars. Zero stars. Zero stars. Because the zero stars is for a reason. It's sending a message saying, hey, Russia, we know you're here and we've got our eyes on you. Mm -hmm. Okay. And if I were to pair that message with a song, it would be courtesy of the red, white and blue by Toby M.F. and Keith. Mm. Who's a big Deb head, by the way. That's right. And a fan. Uh, well, a former fan of this podcast. Yeah, former. Yeah. This is not how I wanted to end this this uh, season. So I'm, I'm sad didn't. that you guys won't look at the evidence in front of you and see. Well, comrade, I am looking at the evidence. Comrade, do you like the sound of that? Did that bring you back? Bring you back to the gulag? Yeah. Did I just take you back? To a scorched earth policy. Mutually assured destruction, destruction, comrade. I think this is a good place to end the show. We'll have to leave it there for now. Well, and I'm switching my phone back to a, a non-smartphone because I see what you've done to me. 13 episodes, you've been tracking me and tracing me all around town. If we have any luck and Apple doesn't kick us off its system, we'll be back for season two of Optophobia after the holidays. With a brand new area of focus and two new co-hosts. Oh, firing us already. Oh. Firing us we'll in the We'll be back whether yeah, you like it or gonna not. We're going to be back, I swear to God. I got nothing else going on for me in my life. But with season one now in the bank, I want to thank my two amazing co-hosts for this season. Hey, Victor, you're welcome. Uh, their insights and curious minds over the last three months have helped us motor along on this journey. Hassan Gray and Deborah, thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome. If you haven't already, and you definitely haven't, please take a listen to Hassan's podcast, Not My Problem. Mm-hmm. And please run out to your local free-thinking bookstore to grab a copy of Deborah's book. I can't go for mind control, no can do. Hall Oates and the Soviet roots of Blue-Eyed Soul. Hmm. Thank you for that, but Band-Aids don't fix bullet holes, Victor. Thank you for listening to Optophobia. I am Victor Sefuentes, and I'll leave you with this. Don't dare to dream. Rather, dare to dream those dreams unrealized. And then dream up a way you can be less of an asshole. See you next season. Please come back for season two, Deep State, which will launch on February 3rd. Follow us as we unearth the truth about who is really pulling the levers of power in Washington and how they do so from a vast bunker underneath the Colorado-Wyoming border. A giant thank you to Liz Sanders, who played the Hall & Oates-obsessed Deborah, and Jamal Newman, 
who played the podcast-challenged Verizon Fios sales associate Hassan Gray. Liz performs with Madeline, a Washington improv theater house ensemble. And Jamal performs with Lena Dunham and Nixon. You can follow him on Instagram and Twitter at at HelloNewman and find him at JamalNewman.com. Thanks also to Colonel John Tex McGreevy, founder of the Polyps at Jonathan Winters, who I hope can now enjoy a leisurely retirement shooting things on his ranch outside of Austin. Finally, special thanks to the late, great Lou Martini, whose aphorisms, from here on out called Louferisms, have helped us wrap each show. Those were all very real things said by a real guy who loved to watch a person's reaction as he shook their hand, looked them dead in the very often confused eyes, and said something like, Punishment's embrace is nothing more than the swan song of retribution's valor. If you enjoyed this season of Optophobia, please let us know. You can find us on our website at optophobia.org or on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at, at optophobes. And please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Optophobia is produced by Tim Townsend. Music by Bart Warshaw. Cover art by Claire Smalley. Website by Chance Griffin. Thanks for listening. Until next season, keep them open. <laughs>